Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we'll be taking a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Well, today we have the big news that Trump has been arrested. He's been let go, but he's been arrested. We got the Big Bricks Summit, which is uh, even now still ongoing. And we have a little bit about space, because India's lunar mission has successfully landed on the moon. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So, adjust my microphone right here. All right, we have Russia advancing on Kupiansk while they're also engaged in a back and forth, uh, sort of a push and pull over the city of Rubadino. Or I say city, but it's more like a really, really small town. And actually, I haven't done this in a while, so you know, we'll pull the map up. We'll pull the map up as I go over the other news and then we'll come back to it. So, we have. Russia advancing, and we've known about Russia making gains in the East ever since, what, two, or was it last week? I will say two weeks ago, when it became clear that Ukraine's offensive had really stopped, because we talked about that one, uh, that war map came out, that the live update map. Uh, dang, what was the name? I forget the name, but, you know, those live updated maps that show you uh, the little bubbles on where certain uh, troops are advancing in whatever location. And on that map, we saw that the blue dots represented Ukrainian offensives and the red dots with rifles represented Russian offensives. There were no blue dots on that map. There were a lot of red dots with rifles on them indicating that Russia was advancing across nearly the entire line. Primarily, though, uh, the entire line, except for the area of Kherson and Zaporizhia, uh, that being, for those who are unaware, it, that's the southwest part of the front line. So the Don, the entire Donbass and a little bit of Zaporizhia, the sort of eastern parts of Zaporizhia, that's where the Russians are pushing primarily, but they are making small pushes across the entire line. And we've known this, but... Now, let's see. I have my map pulled up. So let's see if I can find Kramatorsk. Am I looking for Kramatorsk? No, I'm looking for Kupiansk. I, I just saw Kupiansk. So there's Bakhmut. There's Bakhmut. You know, perhaps I could have had this pulled up beforehand. But you know what? We're, we're doing it live. We're doing it live. So they're making these advances. And the situation for Ukraine really isn't getting uh, better. I'll just say that much. I'm going to start looking at it for it. Because we're hearing reports now that the Ukrainians are gearing up for another round of mobilization. Another one. After all this time, which really doesn't paint a good picture for them. Especially in light of their offensive, which has now definitively failed. Because it's it stopped. It stopped, and what little of that offensive remains, you're hearing people now, even within Ukraine's high command, saying they they should stop the offensive and instead switch to the defensive. All right, and I, I found Kupiansk. I, I found it. It's a, it's a really, really small town, which is why it didn't pop up uh, at first. 
So look at your maps. If you'll find Luhansk, the part of Ukraine that is closest to the Russian city of Rostov, uh, the Luhansk People's Republic or the Luhansk Oblast, and it's just a little bit to the west of Luhansk, up in the north near Kharkov. So this is where we're seeing the fighting, some of the, the heavy fighting right now. That's not in Zaporizhia, which is where the counteroffensive was uh, directed at. So we're seeing fights over Kubiansk. And, well, actually, they've taken Kubiansk, and they're making, they're, there's a back and forth over Robodino. No, I'll try to find Robodino. But yeah, the Russians are indeed making advances towards Kharkov, which is why the Ukrainians evacuated those settlements. Uh, if you remember uh, two weeks ago, we talked about how they had evacuated 36 settlements near Kharkov and Kupiansk. That number is now up to 70. All right, so it's up to 70. No, let's see. And all I can say is it's, it, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. It just hints that it all is getting worse like it's hard to explain but i'll try to articulate it it's like when there's a crack and you can see water leaking in like say it's a flood outside you can see the water leaking in through the crack now you know that that's a problem because you can see the water up to the level of your window Right, you you can see that you, your window is partially submerged. You can look through the same window and see above and below the surface of the water. So you know that that crack is bad news. And you can see the water seeping in through that crack. It's not a crack necessarily in the window; it's a crack in the the wall. So you know it's bad news. You try to cover it up, but then another crack opens up. You try to cover that one, and another crack opens up, and it's just. Even though the catastrophe hasn't happened yet, you can see it's getting ready to transpire. You can see that it's getting ready to transpire. I cannot find Robodino to save my life, so uh, I'll, uh, I'll try to find that later. Probably, it's probably because I'm spelling it wrong. <laughs> but this is the situation Ukraine is in, and it's just not getting better. And the Russians are on the move now. Not quite the backbreaker offensive. It has been brought up, and I was listening to um, the, the Dive podcast uh, with Jackson Hinkle. And he brought up a uh, very relevant point, which is that we're heading into the fall. Uh, actually, it's... Yes, September is when fall officially begins. So we're at the end of summer. The fall is about to begin literally in a matter of weeks, like three weeks or so. That means we're going into the rainy season. And the rainy season means the muddy season in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe in general. So this offensive, that you, even if Ukraine's offensive was continuing, it would have to stop because of the mud, which is part of the reason why they wanted it to be the spring offensive instead of the summer offensive. That's what was brought up on Jackson Hinkle's show. But it's the summer offensive. It started in June and it's already died down. And what's left of it is making not a lot of progress. The Russians are the ones on the move now, but the Ukrainians 
at least we'll have the reprieve of the, the, the mud and the snow eventually. Now, will that really stop the Russians? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. It won't stop the Russian light infantry. They'll, you'll see continual skirmishes across the line even throughout winter. We saw this with Bakhmut. But what's going to end up happening is that both sides are going to get a little bit of a reprieve from the winter. But the Ukrainians are going to be spending that time trying to recoup their losses. Whereas Russia is going to be spending that time preparing for their own offensive. I think that come next summer, we will see the backbreaker offensive. Uh, now, I'm tempted to say we're going to see a winter offensive from the Russians. You know, you know they like their winter offensives. But I think they're, they've committed to the slow and steady approach, which means that they, what's another, what's another winter of preparing and getting ready for the big one? Especially if you're going to spend that winter continually whittling away at Ukraine's defenses. So that's the situation with uh, the Russian advances right now and sort of what I see playing out in the near future. We have Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. He's the, the head general of the Sudanese army. Uh, he's refused the idea of making a deal with the militias under Hamdok, uh, General Hamdok. He's the leader of the Rapid Support Forces. And he has instead decided, and we're talking about Burhan, he has instead decided to seek a conclusion to the war by military means. And this is something that he, certain outlets will criticize him for. Like, every, everyone wants talks. And to an and while I don't say this as much with regards to Ukraine as I perhaps should, it is worth noting that it's an understandable refusal to have outside mediation for what is to them an internal conflict. Like, we can look at Ukraine and say, yes, their refusals to make peace multiple times is what got them into this mess that they're in. And their refusal to say that they're going to be neutral and that they're not going to join NATO their actions have contributed greatly to the situation that they're in. There's no avoiding that. But with regards to the war in the Donbass, sure, they denied Minsk 1, and they didn't live up to Minsk 2. But, and, and while we can logically and reasonably say that that played a massive role in the crisis that they face today, it's also understandable that they wouldn't want outside mediation for an internal conflict because that's what that was the rebel provinces the rebel republics luhansk and donetsk they seceded from ukraine that was a ukrainian civil war so while we can say that yes your actions of not making peace or what led you here uh, again i don't say it enough but it's a reasonable response how would we have felt if there was outside mediation, if if all the, the countries of the day said, hey, we, we need a, a, a ceasefire, we need negoti a negotiated settlement between the Union and the Confederacy, how would we have responded to that? We would have been like, uh, uh, excuse me, get the fuck out of here. Who are you? This isn't your, go away. That's how we would have responded. And so it's understandable why the Ukrainians didn't want outside mediation. Granted, again, we can say that that led to the crisis that they're in. But to Ukraine's credit, to Ukraine's credit, even though they had a really long string of bad decisions, like a person who routinely makes bad decisions and surrounds themselves with 
bad influences. There was that one moment where they they almost made a really good decision. They were about to make peace with Russia back in March and April of 2022. And we, being the bad influences that we are, sabotage it and let Ukraine go relapse back into their, their bad habits. So, uh, we, there's all this talk about negotiations, but at a certain level, we have to understand the root, like a, a fundamental refusal for that on the part of sovereign nation states. Nobody wants outsiders dictating internal affairs, even if those internal affairs happen to be civil wars. The Ethiopians didn't want external in- interference in their civil war. They didn't want a ceasefire. They didn't want a peace talk. They didn't want a ceasefire. Not really. They wanted to finish the war and they got what they wanted. So while we can, you know, since we are removed from the conflict, we can sit up here and say, you know, this action here, this action there, and that action there are what led you to this crisis. And if you didn't do those things, you wouldn't be in this problem. And we can be right, especially with the case of Ukraine. But we also have to stand, we also have to understand that certain actions have reasons behind them, even if they are not necessarily the most rational and the most sensible decisions. We would not have gone along in eighteen in the eighteen sixties, we we would not have gone along with Britain trying to mediate a peace between us and the Confederacy. What like they threatened to do? And you just remember your history when you think about Britain as your quote unquote ally. You know, we we wouldn't have gone along with that. We we would have shot at you. Go away. This is this has nothing to do with you. This is our conflict to preserve our union. They are rebels in our country. We are all Americans here. There's no room for you. There's no room for outside mediation. That's how we would have responded to that. So in a certain sense, we have to be able to understand how the Ukrainians ended up in this situation and the refusal that other countries wouldn't put in similar situations when they have uh, internal conflicts like this. And the immediate response for all the outsiders is, oh, let's just get a peace. Let's just get a peace. Let's just get negotiation. Let's just do this. You got to understand. Nobody wants the sovereignty of their country sabotaged like that because at a certain level, external interference, either even for the sake of peace, even for the sake of peace, external interference is uh, it undermines the sovereignty of the nation and nobody appreciates having their sovereignty undermined. So while it's tragic, when it comes down to conflict, we got to understand that. And again, I don't say it enough with the Ukrainians that it's understandable, but actions have consequences, even if I can understand exactly where those actions and came from. So it's it's one of those things. It's a thing of human nature and a thing of nation states, I suppose. Everyone wants their sovereignty, even if they have to fight for it. Everyone wants their sovereignty, even if they can't have it. So it's an interesting thing, sometimes tragic, but it's very interesting. And I think important to keep in the mind when we discuss conflict, especially internal conflicts. We have, uh, in other news, we have the Iranian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, their spokesman for the foreign affairs, uh, Nasser Kanani, saying that the Iraqi government has agreed to disarm terrorist secession groups in the Kurdish region of northern Iraq, and they promised to do that by September 19th. 
Now, this is uh, done being done in conjunction with the Iraqi government and Kanani, uh, the, the, again, the spokesman for the foreign affairs of Iran. Kanani has also said that Baghdad has agreed to shut down bases run by the Kurdish rebel groups in the semi-autonomous region uh, where the Kurds live in, in northern Iraq. And they also said that members of this group would be relocated to other camps. So, the Kurds are being put on, I don't know if it's fair to say reservations yet, but they're being re forcibly relocated, which, again, tragic, but uh, you know what? You know, I can't say that all, and I won't say all, of the Kurds have been problematic for the I Iraqi government, or for the Syrians, for that matter. Uh, you can't say all. It's too complex for that. But way too complex. Which is part of the reason why we shouldn't be over there. It's a very interesting entangle, not necessarily of alliances, but of interests in that region. And it just so happens that a, a good enough number of Kurdish militants happen to be hostile towards the Iraqi government. To the point where the Iraqis have, are taking these punitive measures against them with the backing of Iran. And I imagine similar policies will be carried out in Syria, uh, especially once the Syrian civil war does close for good. Now, they still have to take that territory we're currently occupying, the, the, the last third of their country. But I don't imagine that the Kurdish groups, which have been hostile towards the central governments, are going to be let, scot let off scot-free. And unfortunately, that's going to mean that innocent Kurdish people get caught up in the crossfire, as is the case when you have relocations and uh, broad strokes of the brush when you paint people in a certain light. Uh, this happens many times in history. So another tragedy perhaps might be in the works, or maybe it could just be a rough patch. We'll wait and see. But definitely something to keep our eyes on especially for those who are much more invested in the situation in the Middle East, or in the Kurds in particular. Now, we have Emmanuel Macron gathering his diplomats at the Elise for the Conference of Ambassadors, and they're discussing French foreign affairs all around the world with a particular eye on Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, and Europe as well, but in, uh, the key point of interest for them, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. So we'll see if there's some sort of readjustment between French foreign policy or if they double down on the imperial policy or if they switch up their imperial policy. Because um, it's not often you see a conference like this. I think France feels like it's being put under a lot of pressure, and it is. Uh, honestly, a good deal of it is France's own fault. They chose to let in all those migrants. Uh, they chose to try to they chose to threaten an intervention in niger which is why they got embargoed with gold and uranium in the first place they chose to bet their horse on ukraine a, a lot of the problems that they have right now are caused by their own decisions which is why i sit here and i say e, they can deal with the consequences of their own problems because their problems are caused by them so but this is a major meeting of high-level diplomats and uh, high-level people, 
in the French government relating to foreign affairs. So we'll 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 be able to observe if anything tangible comes out of this meeting, or if it's just that a meeting and nothing really changes. We'll see, we'll see, because I don't put it past the French to switch up and change the tactic. They can when they want to. I'm just not entirely convinced that they will, but they have made hints here and there that they could. With Macron saying he wants to. He wants to see the BRICS. He wants to have a meeting with BRICS. He wants to go meet with Xi Jinping, and he did meet with Xi Jinping. Uh, there was, for a minute, a very brief minute, there was talk of France joining the Belt and Road. There's lots of things that France can do. They're not landlocked. They, they're uh, a maritime power, uh, semi-maritime, semi-land. You know, they have the ability to reach out around the world and interface with the rest of the world. So they can do a lot. But will they is the real question. So we'll observe. We will sit back and observe. We have uh, Evgeny Prigozhin dying in a plane crash. And this is one of the, the big uh, hot topic issues of the week. The natural rumor of this is that Putin did it, which, like, you can't, you, you can't say too much against that possibility. It is a very, very big possibility. Although Alexander the Duran did bring up an important point which is that Putin wouldn't want the fallout of this assa- of this assassination if it was an assassination. Putin wouldn't want the fallout of this during the BRICS summit. He wouldn't. And that if he was going to conduct an assassination, he probably wouldn't do it while you- Prigozhin was in Russia and lose Russian lives because the pilot and the people on board the helicopter died as well. He would have done it uh, somewhere out in Africa or in the Middle East. Wherever he sent Prigozhin to, it wouldn't have been in Russia if it was an assassination. At least that's Alexander's opinion. And I think it's a a very valid point to make. So for the time being, maybe it was Putin. Maybe it wasn't Putin. Maybe it was the West. Uh, You can't can't discount that possibility. Because when the whole Prigozhin mutiny was going down, there was talk of Prigozhin having connections in the West and the possibility that people in, say, United States and Europe were promising him riches beyond his wildest imagination, promising him power, fame, and influence if he did certain things for them in Russia. Now, whether or not those are true, I don't know. But there's the possibility that that they might have been true and that him being so soundly defeated with that mutiny being crushed uh, and with no blood loss as well uh, it made Putin stronger and he's uh, he essentially got exiled and all of his influence was swiftly removed by people reorienting themselves around Putin there's the possibility that at that point Prigozhin became a, a loose end so to speak for the people running the show in the United States and Europe, and they might have tried to get rid of him. Maybe. You know, that's speculation. But I think that that's every bit. Uh, the At the very least, the idea that the West was responsible for him dying in some way is every bit as possible as Putin being responsible, because let's not just, let's not pretend that we're innocent here. I mean, especially when you see our news outlets calling him a war criminal. Every day and night, except for the like 48 hours that he was 
the great the hero of our time because he was uh, raising an army against Putin, and then he went back to being a, a evil war criminal. So don't put it past ourselves. You know, we could have been every bit as responsible for getting rid of him as Putin was. We just don't know. We just don't know. Perhaps we'll find out more, but only time will tell. We have, we have Emerson Mangakwanga, Umnangagawa, Umnangagwa. There we go. Emerson Umnangagwa has been reelected as the president of Zimbabwe for his second five-year term. Now, the PBS article I was reading on this said that his his this came following another troubled vote. And it's troubled because the opposition accuses Mnangangwa of cheating. So it's interesting that the opposition accusing him of cheating wasn't uh, them committing the most heinous of crimes and that the election was not the most secure election in history, not worthy of being challenged by such uh, blatant, uh, such big lies, so to speak. And it's even more interesting how Nelson uh chamisa the guy who lost and is labeling the winner a cheater it's interesting that he is not being he himself is not being labeled an enemy of the state for saying for claiming that they were cheating isn't that crazy i I wonder uh, like we could never see something like that happen in the united states where someone who says that there was fraud gets accused of being an enemy of the state and he has all these all these charges levied against him that would never happen in the United States. <laughs> but yeah, so it's crazy. Isn't it? But we have Ukraine, and, and we'll talk about this and then we'll move on to the meat. Ukraine seems to be gradually shifting toward the defensive posture. That, that's what some of the, the articles coming out have indicated. And, but they haven't quite given up on the offensive yet. They, they're being pushed and pressured into giving it up but they haven't let go of the offensive just yet. So they're still doing some attacks in some places, but it's clear that the Russians have the advantage. And again, I I mentioned early on, they're talking about mobilization. And this mobilization is the kind where all adults will have to serve. Now, perhaps I am... Miss, I misread that, or I'm skipping over a, a whole level or two of mobilizations because there's multiple levels involved in this. Uh, but either way, the outcome seems to be uh, that outcome of all adults serving. That seems to be the outcome, the direction that the Ukrainians want to move towards, even if they have to go through a number of levels to get there. Uh, two at the max. I, I don't see too many more waves of mobilization that they can go through, especially with how many waves of mobilization that they've already gone through and they're still running out. Uh, And the fact that we're even talking about mobilization for Ukraine, especially on such a scale where they're talking, uh, they're talking wild numbers in the millions, one to three million is the numbers being floated. Well, one to three and a half million. The fact that we're even talking about that uh, means that what I predicted about this offensive has come to pass, which is that Ukraine has exhausted their reserves of men, machines, and ammunition. Now, they can still replace the men, 
which is why they're mobilizing, which is why they can mobilize in the first place. But the fact that they are mobilizing means that they've exhausted the reserves that they had on hand. So now they have to go grab more from the populace. But again, they have exhausted not just men. They've exhausted their the tanks, their vehicles. So even though they can still replace the men and the women, because they have women serving now, in larger and larger numbers, because they're, they're running out of able-bodied men, even though they can still replace the men, they cannot replace the tanks, the, the tanks, the armored vehicles, the air defenses, the artillery, and they can't replace the ammunition that all of those things use. So even should this mobilization complete, and I do think they'll, they'll at the bare minimum, be able to put a rifle in everyone's hand. I don't think it'll be get that bad to where they send people forward and there'll be one guy with a rifle for every three men that they send forth, like the, the Imperial Russian army in World War One. I. I don't think it's going to be that bad to where you got to wait for the guy next to you to die to pick up his rifle. I don't think it'll get bad, that bad for Ukraine. But what they're going to end up with is a lot of men, women, and children with rifles. But a man with a gun behind every blade of grass will not be enough for Ukraine to win this war. And that's the truth. But we will continue to observe the developments in the war in Ukraine. But that's the rapid fire, and we'll get to the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode. So, we'll start off with Trump. (laughs) Big John. (laughs) Now, why are we starting with Trump? Because he was arrested. He was arrested. In fact, he was indicted for the fourth time, this time by a DA in Fulton County, Georgia, over claims that he, over the claims that the election was stolen, that Trump has made since 2020 correctly. Now, the claim is on the part of the DA and on the part of the people indicting him, they claim that he, Trump, he knew it was a legitimate vote and that he tried to overturn it anyway. That's what they claim. Now, Trump has also been brought up on RICO charges. That's racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations charges for crimes which range, uh, well, I looked it up, range from gambling to murder to kidnapping to arson, drug dealing, bribery, uh, mail and wire fraud. So essentially committing fraud for the sake, for the purposes of uh, gaining money and raising money for himself as a political figure. So they're trying to bring those charges up on him as well. They're throwing the kitchen sink at him. Everything and the kitchen sink is what they're throwing at him to try to keep him from running because if they can, their estimation is that if they can catch him on any of these charges, be it Rico or for election, his election fraud, excuse me, if they can catch him on any of these, their estimation is that they can say that he did all this and he incited a deadly riot with January 6th and he's unfit to run for office. And then they'll try to use that to take him off the ballot. Uh, based on the 14th Amendment, which says if you engage in rebellion against the United States, that you are ineligible to run for office. So that's sort of the the estimation behind 
some of these indictments being levied his way. It's all about election interference. It's all about keeping him off the ballot. It's all about keeping him from running. They want to, if they can, put him in a jail cell and preferably put him in a jail cell in a way that he cannot run for president anymore. That's what they're hoping to do. Now, he was arrested on Thursday night, and at this point, he has, what, 91 charges levied against him, some ridiculous number? And it's only going to go up. I imagine we'll hit the 200 mark by 2024. I fully anticipate that. But they have, they have all these charges against him, but none of which they're going to be able to prove. Like, his bail, his bail, before we move on, his bail was posted at 200000 uh, the bill was paid the next day, so Trump is now a free man. Uh, he, the charges haven't been dropped, but he's out of jail. And it wasn't just Trump who was arrested. It was nearly his entire legal team and any lawyer who has represented Trump or given legal counsel to him throughout the entire election fraud saga. Uh, so, so far, many of these legal aides have been let go as well. However, some, like Harrison Floyd, the head of the organization uh, Black Voices for Trump, they have not been let go. And there's uh, pictures of all of them smiling when they got their mugshots taken. Because, probably because they knew they were going to get let off. And I I assume that everyone thought that's how this was going to go down. But I guess the, the one black guy in the group uh, had to stay in jail. Uh, so... Uh, uh, racism racism hello racism on the on the racism in 2023 on the part of the atlanta da is crazy but as a side note here there are speaking of, <laughs> as a side note there's a lot of people primarily conservatives now saying that because trump was arrested he's gonna have a higher approval among blacks uh so now as someone who is black myself, my natural instinct is to say that that, that sounds a little racist. <laughs> but you know, you know, beyond how it might sound at first, there might actually be some merit to these claims. I know just the other day I saw a video of a guy with a t-shirt that <laughs> a t-shirt that said niggas for trying. <laughs> <laughs> so so you know maybe they're right maybe they're right maybe maybe the polls are right i i i uh, i've leaned off of the polls i'll trust the results if the results are trustworthy that's where i'm at you know people talk about the polls i you know i guess i'm talking something to talk about during the political season but me i don't trust the polls they have proven untrustworthy quite often time and time again so i'll veer away from polls i will veer vehemently away from them especially uh when it concerns american politics although it is worth mentioning since we're on the topic of polls that there was one poll came out i think it was gallup i think it was gallup um saying that americans a majority of americans for the first time are now opposed to the u.s doing more in the ukraine war so there's that there there's your poll but back to the Trump story. So there's there might just be some credence to the claim that Trump getting arrested has improved his standing among the black population. Uh, by how much? I don't know. We'll just have to see. It, it could be marginal. It could be a lot. We will just have to wait and see. 
No. Uh, where am I? Where am I? I've lost track. Right, 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 right. So they're accusing Trump of trying to overthrow the government and to overturn an election. These are the, the biggest charges being levied against him that they're really going all in on. So trying to overthrow the government January 6th and trying to overturn an election which he knew was legitimate. So that's the that's why they're going after all the lawyers, uh, or at least that's their justification. They they don't really have the right to be doing that. That's quite frankly illegal. But I guess when has the law ever stopped a criminal, which is what our government consists of? So they've been doing all these on um, those two charges: overthrowing the government January six, and trying to overturn an election with all of his legal challenges to twenty twenty, and saying that twenty twenty was a fraudulent vote. There was voter fraud. Now, again, neither of these accusations are ever going to be proved. And the reason I say that is because the overthrowing the government thing died with his acquittal in the second impeachment trial, which, if you remember, was about just that, trying to overthrow the U.S. government by inciting a deadly riot, a, a deadly insurrection. January 6th, and trying to use that to overthrow the government and overturn an election. So truthfully, both of those charges lost with his acquittal in the second impeachment. But again, don't let the law stop a criminal. Uh, when is it, when has the law ever stopped a criminal? Who knows? But yeah, those died with him being acquitted in the second impeachment, which was over these exact same charges, essentially. And... Uh, this insurrection that they called it. He was acquitted. Why was he acquitted? Because they couldn't prove any of what they were alleging at the time. Now, of course, being the U.S. government or deep state or swamp, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, they, that's what I'm referring to when I say they, uh, that still hadn't stopped them. They, even though they were proved wrong on all these same exact charges, nearly what three years ago they're still going and well actually yeah yeah three nearly three years ago ha huh. how the time flies but yeah they they lost all these cases that they're living against him right now all these charges they already lost back in 2021 during the second impeachment trial they they lost they, they can't win now on charges that have already been defeated. And that was over him being uh, the president when they perhaps could have been more legitimate. Now he's a citizen and the front runner in the presidential election. He's not the president anymore. He's a citizen. So now you're saying he's going he's gonna to do all these things with less power? How is he going to do that? Again, they just, they have already lost because he got acquitted in the second impeachment trial now as far as trying to overturn an election specifically an election that trump knew to be legitimate they have to prove that he believed the election was legitimate well they have to prove that he knew or believe whichever we they'd have to prove that he knew it was legitimate and then acted contrary to what he knew they will never they will never be able to prove that they will never, because 
every account we have, every record we have uh, regarding Trump's opinion of the 2020 election is that it was stolen. So even if he was wrong, which he's not, even if he was wrong, that would ultimately mean that he had an incorrect opinion, an incorrect opinion. And to lock someone up for an opinion, let alone an opinion contesting the results of an election, that's a multi-vectored violation of the First Amendment. Not only a violation of free speech, freedom of speech, but a violation of the freedom to petition your government for a redress of grievances. That's it. And that's exactly what this is. That's what all these challenges to the 2020 election were. Him trying to petition the government, you know, the other parts of the government through the through the legal system, petitioning the government, even while he was president. He was petitioning the government for a redress of his grievance, which was that he thought it was a fraudulent election. That's it. So all of this right now is a multi-vectored violation of the First Amendment. And it doesn't just apply to him, it applies to all of us, it, uh, me in particular. I, I refuse to call that guy Biden president. Shoot, am I going to be locked up now too for saying, rightfully, that the election was fraudulent in 2020? And in 2022, to be quite frank, uh, am, I, am I now a criminal? Am I now an enemy of the state? And what about all the Democrats who said that 2016 was illegitimate? Who said that R Putin rigged the 2016 election for Trump to win? And that there was Russian interference. That means that in 20, that's essentially like saying 2016 was illegitimate because there's Russian interference. Trump is a Putin, of, Trump is a puppet of Putin, remember? So what about all the Democrats who said 2016 was illegitimate? Are they now enemies of the state as well? Well, of course they're not. Because they're in on the take. But this is the precedent that's being set. If you question, not the election, but if you question the permanent government in Washington, the swamp, the deep state, the bureaucracy, if you if you challenge and question them and their authority, all these unelected, <laughs> all these unelected swamp cretins who rig elections to stay in power, if you question them, and you are not one of them, you get to be, you get to rot in jail. That's the message that they're trying to send. And I think that that's a really terrible message for a republic. Uh, but then again, they don't really care about the republic and they don't really care about the constitution. If they did, well, we wouldn't be in this situation. But you know, and, and quite frankly, if they cared about the citizenry, if they cared about the American public, we also wouldn't be in this situation because they would just respect the vote the vote of the american public they would have looked into the election when they saw how many people were concerned about its legitimacy they wouldn't have played these games uh, accusing anybody who so much as implied that the election wasn't on the up and up of being uh, treasonous essentially they, they wouldn't we wouldn't be in this situation if our government was actually of by and for us but it's not it's captured which is precisely why we need Trump. And it's precisely why they hate Trump. Because Trump is not captured. Trump is not one of them. As a matter of fact, Trump represents an existential threat to them. 
the threat that he, as an actual representative of the American people, will rob them of their jewel in the crown, of their global empire. Trump, if he wins, will rob these people of the one country that makes their whole, all their global operations possible. America. If Trump wins and America first rules the day, and he is able to reorient the American foreign policy position such that we are not hostile to every country on the face of the earth, then these people lose. They lose their ability to go spawning conflicts everywhere. They lose their ability to launder money everywhere. They lose their ability to utilize the American military and the American economy to force other countries into submission. They lose everything they don't have America. They've hollowed out Europe. There's nowhere left for them to go. They wanted to go to China and have China be the new base of operations, but Xi Jinping won't let them. They wanted to pillage and ransack Russia after the Cold War, but Putin wouldn't let them. That's why they hate these three people. That's why they hate the multipolar world. That's why they tr constantly try to drum up all this fear about everything happening overseas, when if you take a step back, you realize none of it is bad for United States. In fact, if we just reoriented ourselves a little bit, we could benefit from everything happening overseas. We could benefit from the peace deals in the Middle East. We can finally leave. There's no power vacuum. We could benefit from the Belt and Road. Just make a trade deal with the countries that China is investing in. Duh. It's that simple. We don't need to go have a cold war with everybody. Let's have nuclear disarmament. Let's have a treaty on the Atlantic, partition the Atlantic between us and the Russians. Well, of course, we'll have to annex Canada. You know, that's uh, that's a necessary. That's a given. We can't have the British constantly running influence operations against us from Canada. You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, the Great White North will be good for America. You know, something to focus on in the New World instead of everyone else's business. Canada and Greenland, they both they both should be ours. They rifle American clay, you know. But these are things America could be doing. And that Trump, if he comes to power, he'll he'll definitely come back for Greenland. I, I hope he does. I hope he does. Come back for Greenland. But Trump will rob these people, these imperialists, these anti-humanists who hate people. They they hate people. It's and they're not even hiding it. When 2020 came around, they locked everybody in their home. They showed you who they really are. Tyrants, authoritarians who want you locked in your home and sick. And they and they would use a manufactured virus to lure you into taking a poison. Uh, and a, a, a semi-lethal injection that sabotages every system in your body, your cardiac, your cardiac system, your, I mean your cardiovascular system, your nervous system, your immune system, your reproductive system. The vaccine is toxic to the human body. And they wanted to give you a, one dose after another. They want that shit to be year round. Every year, go get your go get your COVID shot. They wanted it to be biannually, quite frankly. Every six months, go get your COVID shot. What would that have done to people's immune systems? We were like we're we're slowly but steadily witnessing the damage that's been done over time from the sh the number of shots that people did get, the two to three shots that people got. And even that's causing problems, especially with young people getting sudden death syndrome. These random heart attacks. 
these people are evil. Remember, they forced you to take this. Remember, they they said you can't have your job back if you don't take this. These This is the caliber of people that we're talking about who run the show in America. And Trump threatened to rob them of America, which means that they would not have had the power, the influence, or the ability to do any of the evil, the great harm to humankind that they take this great satisfaction in doing. They want us all on green energy, except they don't want nuclear. Well, okay, let's let's just go grab the most inefficient and lowest energy dense uh, forms of energy generation known to man uh, to the point where you couldn't get more inefficient without going to slavery <laughs> and having a whole bunch of slaves turn a wheel like you see in some of those uh those older movies or the cartoons you know that they have that giant wheel and you have the, all the people pushing a a pin on the wheel and it go and they all go in a circle and they have the chains on them yeah you couldn't get more uh, more inefficient at generating energy without going to that and and honestly that that might actually be more energy efficient than the green techs that we're being told that we have to get the the solar turb the solar turbines the solar panels and the wind turbines these people who hate it, people, these people who hate people, these rich men north of Richmond, who want to have total control and destroy us all. They want you living in poverty. They don't care how many dollars they have to print to wipe away your buying power, and they don't care what the consequences are to you. They don't care how much of your resources they have that they give away to other countries around the world. They just don't care about you. They want to have their little empire. They want to have their little spheres of influence. They want to have their little fiefdoms. They want to have their money laundering. They want to live the comfortable life and not have to do any work for it. They want to live off of, off of you. They want to live at your expense. As a matter of fact, they want you dead. Trump is not like them. As a matter of fact, in many ways, he's, he's an antithesis to them. And they know that this time he will get rid of them. He will bring them accountability. He will bring them handcuffs, handcuffs, and they would rather kill us all than to, than to be put in jail. They hate him, they hate Xi Jinping, they hate Putin, and that's why they wanna fight Putin so badly. They, they hate Putin and Russia with this deep, visceral, unexplainable level of vitriol and hatred it's unexplainable it's un it's irrational it's it's not russophobia it's whatever the, the 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 word is for an irrational anger towards something instead of an irrational fear whatever the word is for that that's they have that with putin and russia they hate russia with this intense white hot passion to the point where they're willing to sac it doesn't matter how many ukrainian lives they have to sacrifice so long as they feel good about fighting russia but they can't do any of that without america because we've seen how useless and worthless the europeans are and the rest of the west that some people in the united states want america to be babysitting until the end of time i do not subscribe to those ideas just because we all happen to be western that i have to take care of you no no, no. we might be moving into an age of civilizations but I am not going to be on the book for the British Empire. But they wouldn't be able to do any of this without America. The Europeans don't have the wherewithal to go fight Russia. 
they've deindustrialized Europe. As a matter of fact, they've deindustrialized the entirety of the West. Nobody could do what they are doing in Ukraine. The United States is the only one. So with Trump there, and this is why they hate him more than any of the other, say, populist or nationalist candidates in, say, Europe. Those are a problem for them, but Trump is an apocalypse for them. Because if Trump wins and he is able to institute his America first policies, he will rob these imperialist anti-humanists who want us all dead. He will rob them of the jewel in their crown. He will rob them of the heart of their empire, the United States. And he will expose all of their lies in the process just by actions, just by demonstrating that, hey, oh, we don't need to be fighting wars here, 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 and here. Oh, we don't need to fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. If we stay over here, they don't come over here. And then they stay over there, which means we don't have to fight them over there. Oh, we can do trade. We can make deals with all these people we were told were our enemies. We can make deals with the Taliban. We can make deals with Russia and China and North Korea and Iran. We can make deals with everybody. We're the United States. We are the great trading power. Oh, wow. We can have industry in the United States. Oh, oh, okay. So it wasn't cheap Chinese labor that robbed us of our industry. It was our own government and inflation that robbed us of our industry. Oh, okay. So if we just if we just don't have inflation, if we stop printing money and we let the value of our dollar go up instead of down every year, we can start reindustrial. Oh, okay. If oh, if we use our own resources instead of going overseas and using our military to occupy other people's resources, we can have everything we need here at home. Oh, wow. Isn't that great? His very existence, along with his policy, would rob them of every sort of justification, every veil that they pull over people's heads to go along with policies that they otherwise wouldn't consent to. He would remove everything. Everything would be unmasked just by way of him being there. And on top of that, he would go out of his way to humiliate them because they've done everything necessary to humiliate him. He would come back for revenge. And that's exactly what we need. Revenge against these people who hate us. He would rob them of the jewel in the crown of their empire, the United States. And America would shine. America would not be condemned to perpetual irrelevance like they want, like they're doing, like they're going out of their way to create. America would be a great power among other great powers that was able to live in peace. This whole Thucydides trap thing would be exposed as a, a uh, something that, at the very least, just doesn't apply to the United States. I'll just leave it at that. And that's why they hate Trump. It's why they hate Trump, Putin, and Xi Jinping. They, those three people have robbed them of their plans. They're their grand vision of the world, the new world order. It wasn't supposed to go this way. The multipolar world wasn't supposed to be a thing. It wasn't supposed to be the multipolar world order. It was supposed to be the new world order. They were supposed to be in charge of China commanding China's industry that they had that they had cleaned the slate across the entire developed world to build up. They were supposed to have it all. And they were supposed they were supposed to have a, a billion and a half people at their disposal to do this. They were supposed to have it all. But Xi Jinping didn't let them have China. Russia didn't let them Putin didn't let them have Russia's territory and resources. And Trump threatens to take away the only good thing they have left, which is the United States, and leave them with what? 
a rump state Europe, deindustrialized, decivilized, uh, permanently chaotic Europe because of all the destabilized Europe because of all the immigrants. And we can see the fallout of that in France right now. He would, if Trump wins, he will leave these people with nothing except for the remnants of what we call the West. Because even Africa <laughs> isn't letting them have it. Latin America isn't letting them have it. They'll be left with nothing. And that's why they hate Trump, which is why, just one of the many reasons we need him. And we can see how viscerally they hate him and how much they view him as a threat by these endless witch hunts that they do against him. And this won't be the last one. This won't be the last one. But, you know, with that mugshot, which is already on T-shirts, I can see it. He's going to continue benefiting from this. And you know what? I'm all here for the show. I'm all here for the show. All right. So now we'll get into the, the Big Bricks Summit, which is still ongoing, mind you. But we do have some interesting things coming out of it for now that we can talk about. And we'll probably do a follow-up on this on the next episode to sort of uh, assume that it's over by then. It might be over. It might go on. We'll we'll do updates on the BRICS Summit as it goes on. Because this is a merry, a merry, a merry, major, oh, goodness, where's my English? A very major, there we go. This is a very major summit. This is huge. This is the Bretton Woods of the multipolar world. This is it. This is where the, the whole world comes together to decide what the new system, the new global system is going to be and the, what the new rules of engagement are going to be, how we operate in it, what, what's the new settlement currency, is it going to be someone nationals, someone's national currency or is, is it going to be this, inter, this international trade settlement currency, who's going to be a part of it, who's not going to be a part of it, you know, the big issues trade settlements uh disputes it's all on the table it's all on the table so this is a very major summit and we're going to talk about it. so last week it it it, it, it continued because it started prior to last week's episode so this is a very big thing just in terms of the length of it all now at the summit a number of things were discussed particularly the expansion of the organization as well as de-dollarization. Now, these are things that we said, that I said as much was going to happen because these were topics on everyone's mind. What exactly does de-dollarization lo look like? Are we going to do trade in local currencies? Are we going to do this new BRICS currency? What's the new BRICS currency going to be named? When do we expect that to come out? The logistics of it, are we expanding the BRICS or is everyone just going to be an affiliate of the BRICS? And we're just, you're just going to watch while the core BRICS members go forward. You know, the, these are some of the primary things that were up for discussion prior to the summit. Now, the BRICS, the BRICS gold-backed trade settlement currency has not been implemented yet. They, they haven't come to a conclusive agreement on that yet. They want to do it, but they haven't worked out the logistics of it just yet. So it's in the works. It's in the works. It still doesn't have a name, so we'll continue to call it the BRICS currency. But that is in the in the works. So de-dollarization is eventually going to lead to that settlement currency. All right. So that's what's going to happen sometime later on down the line. How long? 
not entirely sure. Maybe 20. I feel like 20 this time 2024 would be a bit of a rush. But things are moving really, really fast. So I I can't put it past the the fact that we the possibility that we might see a BRICS currency being rolled out at this time next year. But I, I'd say certainly by 2025, 2026, we're going to start to see the this currency start being rolled out. And again, it could move a lot faster than that because things events have just been moving at breakneck speed these past few months ever since the war in ukraine started developments have just been moving at lightning speed so i don't put it past the bricks to put this currency out or to even fast forward its development as the united states slips further into a depression and as we continue to hyperinflate the currency because there's really no upper limit on how much money we can print until after the 2024 election. That was a big gripe that I, I missed when I initially covered that, uh, that the budget battle in Congress, if you remember that, uh, the debt ceiling debate where I initially praised them for putting limits on it. And then I realized that there was no upper limit. So I had to come back. So there's, they can print as much money as they want until after the 2020 election. Uh, the 2020 the 2024 election they can print as much money as they want so there's a real possibility that as these people in our government hyper and hyper and hyper inflate our currency to no end the BRICS countries might be put in a position where they have no choice but to fast forward uh the rollout of the internet of the gold-backed trade settlement currency and i I stress that it's going to be a trade settlement currency rather than just a currency because it's not necessarily going to be something you like you use on the street for your regular uh, transactions. It's going to be there for interbank payments and uh, the transition of currencies like I mean the exchange of currencies, excuse me. So if you want to use uh, trade in local currencies, you can have you could have the settlement currency as the intermediary. Uh, or perhaps if you are a part of the BRICS, you can have your own currency and a, a, a load of the settlement currency, and you can use the settlement currency to exchange for the currency of whatever country you're doing trade with. If you're not doing, if you don't have a a, a local currencies type deal between you and that country, or or perhaps uh, you you're too far away and you you don't feel like a a local currency swap you don't do an, enough trade between each other to justify doing local currency trade so you rely on the settlement currency to facilitate the trade between your two countries like there's a great number of ways that this can go down once it's implemented but yeah the the inflation of america's dollar by these people who have no restraint and no upper limits right now there's no upper limit until after 2024 there's a possibility we could see the BRICS currency rolled out a lot faster than we think because we could see inflation just shoot up a lot faster than we think in the United States. And that would be dangerous for us and, quite frankly, a little unstable for the rest of the world. I don't think that these guys want to rush the BRICS currency, but we might we, we might see a situation like that play out. So keep your eyes open for that, especially if you live in the United States or if you have anything based in dollars. 
keep your eyes off of that. I know I am. I am a little anxious. I'm trying to set myself up so I can benefit from the crash because, you know, everything becomes cheaper during the crash. It's just a matter of surviving the crash itself because, shoot, if you can survive the crash with some dough left over, you can go buy yourself a house. You can, you can go get that car you wanted and you can actually own things instead of, oh, I got a mortgage instead of 60,000 down on a house. You, if you if you can weather the storm, mind you. And that's the biggest part. That, that's the part that worries me is that I and my family may or may not be able to weather that storm. But if you can weather the storm, everything's cheap. Everything on, everything's on sale now. Everything's on sale. And you can go you can go buy that house for what used to be a down payment. You can go buy that car for what used to be a down payment. <laughs> and hell, if you have some left over, you can go invest in the stocks while they're at rock bottom. And so you're going to make multiple X returns on the way back up. Uh, now, granted, you're probably going to want to wait for the crash to really finish because you country companies go bankrupt and then they just go out of business and you don't want to be left holding that bag whether you have a thousand, ten thousand $10,000 sunk into a company. So uh, do exercise your own caution when doing these things. Like I'm just giving you general ideas of what's possible during a recession. Uh, but again, it's all about weathering that storm. And I'm trying to weather that storm. I'm trying, I'm trying to get ready. I'm trying to get ready. Uh, but yeah, we are, we're, we're in for a very rough one here in the United States. All my fellow Americans, we are in for a very rough one. But at the very least, I do have hope that things will get better on the other end because, uh, you know, we have Trump, you know, <laughs> we do. And that's not just politics. That's it's policy. It's not just politics. It's policy. That's sir. But for now, back to the BRICS summit. They, a lot of BRICS members and affiliates have agreed to conduct more trade in local currencies, or a sort of a short and medium term measure while the BRICS currency itself is sort of being worked out. So that's the stopgap measure. Their, their goal is de-dollarization, and they're making major moves towards that. And this was happening even before the BRICS summit, where you had China and Russia doing trade in yuan and rubles. You had Russia and Turkey doing trade in lira and rubles. You had, um, I think it was Iran and another country doing trade in local currencies. You had China and Arabia doing trade in uh, yuan. And what's the what's the Arabian currency? What's the Arabian currency? I forget. But they were doing trade to each other. India and Indonesia was doing trade in rupees. And dang, I'm blanking on my currencies. But yeah, you had lots of uh, local currency deals being worked out all around the world. And even uh, on a side note, you had ASEAN talking about getting rid of their usage of MasterCard, which is just a really massive blow to the U.S. finance uh, people vacation and you know the last thing you want to be is that guy showing up in indonesia trying to use your credit card and it's like oh we don't accept that you're broke it's like hey i paid all this money to get here but yeah they're moving forward with de-dollarization both in and outside of the bricks so this is definitely a very real trend not just something uh that's going to be transitory or, or maybe if we're in the Fed, we'll say it's transitory and then we'll realize, oh, if we don't, if the root cause of this doesn't go away, it's not transitory. You know, uh, so uh, as the people in the Fed would say, this is transitory, which means <laughs> that it's going to continue. 
it's going to continue on. And so de-dollarization is moving forward. They're moving towards the BRICS currency. It's not ready yet, uh, but I have a feeling it's going to be uh, pushed out faster than we might expect. Or faster than they probably want, but pretty fast. A year or two, give or take. And on the matter of expansion of the BRICS, as of now, Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates have all become full members of the BRICS, effective January 1st of 2024. So that's six new members. So the the BRICS, in terms of official members, have now doubled in size, more than doubled, actually, because they've added six and there was only five before. So they've doubled. So, uh, and isn't it interesting how no one's, how that whole Russia's isolated narrative has now just conveniently vanished from from the headlines? Remember how Russia was isolated for the, for a year and a half? Remember how they were, they were isolated now? And, and now no one talks about Russia being isolated. And no one talks about that anymore. Hmm. It's almost as if it wasn't true. But you know what? That... That's just why you guys listen to me, you know. I, I just give it to you straight. I mean, yeah, I try my best, and you know, it's, it ain't easy being better than the propaganda press. I tell you, it's it's a little bit of work out here, but you know, it's worth it. <laughs> it's worth it. But yeah, it's clear that that narrative is dead, and that the world is moving on, irrespective of what we have to say about it. Now, does that mean we have to go join the club? No, we really don't. We don't. What are, what are we gonna do in bricks? I mean, we like again. We we really don't need to be a part of a club. We could just do trade with everybody and then go and mind our own business. And then we don't need to be concerned about these alliances. We we can just be an associated power. That's what we can be. That, that's the epitome of American freedom, both internally and externally. But that would require a strong, robust economy inside the United States. Which, again, we need Trump for. And granted, look, it's not like I'm knocking every candidate on the field. It's just that Trump is the only one that has the foreign policy right. Everyone else has this weird ideas about us going to fight a war somewhere for some reason. Trump has to come in, reorient the United States, get rid of all the the trash, get rid of these alliances, or, or hell, we can let Joe Biden destroy them for us. I... I think that that's going to be in store for us when the Ukraine shit goes down. Mm. I think that the knives are going to come out and then NATO is just going to all but die as an effective unit. And then Trump can just be the one to come along and formalize it and pull the United States out. That, that, now that would be some good shit. But yeah, Trump has to come along, get us out of these commitments one by one, whether by negotiation or just by leaving. He has come in, renegotiate the trade expose the the idea that all these countries around the world are our enemies and just do trade with them and then we can move forward and from there from there all these other candidates who i do like on the domestic policy side of things they will have no choice but to focus on domestic policies and then we get real and innovative solutions to America's problems, and that becomes the new status quo for American politics. That, that's something to strive for, but we have to have Trump in order to get there, because no one else is going to get the foreign policy right. No one else is going to get the foreign policy right to the point where we can focus exclusively on domestic policy. So, uh, uh, 
I hate for this episode but uh, uh, to be nothing but an endorsement of Trump, but you know, I, I gotta do it. I got it's for the safety of our country. We we need that nigga. <laughs> niggas for Trump. <laughs> we need it. We need him. But yeah, he he has to come in and basically reconfigure the entirety of American foreign policy such that every candidate that comes after him focuses exclusively on domestic policy. And then we'll have real prosperity in the United States again and continuity of policy. Because once you get rid of the, once you throw the foreign policy out and it's just a matter of domestic policy, we can, different parties can start to build on policy instead of throwing everything out the second a new president comes in. We can have a little bit of continuity in policy. And that's good for business, which means it's good for us. You know, I do believe that we will prosper a lot during this multipolar world. Now, do we need to be a part of the BRICS? No. But the BRICS is expanding. What does that mean to us? It means uh, it means nothing. <laughs> like all these people saying, oh, the, the BRICS is expanding. This is a, a threat to the U.S. No, it's not. How are they threatening us? How exactly are they threatening us? What, because they don't want to use our currency? That we sabotage ourselves by hyperinflating it? How are they threatening us? If anything, we're threatening them by sabotaging the dollar when everybody uses the dollar. Like, a, a little bit of self-reflection goes a long way. A little bit of self-awareness goes an even farther way. But yeah, it's it's not a matter of who's threatening who. It's a matter of interests and orientation and america's unfortunately oriented the wrong way we're oriented in a way where everything is our enemy and we have to fight everything which is why we need trump to come in and break that up so we can get back to doing business with the world and then it doesn't matter who owns what it doesn't matter who produces this amount of oil and who who produces this amount of this commodity if the united states is dependent on its own oil its own energy its own resources you know all these would cease being factors in American politics. But that would require a massive overhaul at home that nobody in power right now is willing to do because they hate America. But yeah, so we have six countries joining the BRICS. Uh, all this can be beneficial for the United States. And I'm sure that they would more than welcome us if we didn't try to, you know, screw with them so much. Uh, and I look forward to the day when we can just do business with all of them and we'll benefit. They'll benefit. We'll benefit. Everybody benefits. Now, I put up an infographic on my Twitter regarding the bricks that I got from this uh, uh, from the visual capitalist showing the bricks uh, on a map. And it was, again, it was an infographic. And so it had these bars at the bottom talking about the percentage of economy, population, uh, trade. And oil production. So, and I, I put it up on my Twitter this week in geopolitics or HW geopolitics. I think that's the handle. So you know, just a minor shout out to my Twitter. Go on, <coughs> go on and follow me if you. But I put it up there, and so I'll share some of the the contents with you right now. Which is, uh, the BRICS now represent twenty nine percent of the global economy altogether. Now, obviously, China is disproportionate has a disproportionate share of that 
uh, China and Russia. Although I forget if it was using uh, nominal or PPP terms when it talked about GDP, but either way, China's disproportionate, disproportionately accounted for that in that figure, the 29%. So nearly a third of the world's economy, well, nearly 30%, 46% of the world's population, uh, China and India, duh. <laughs> So uh, I'm pretty sure that alone is like uh, the 40% out of the 40 out of the 46%. So uh, yeah, 3 billion people just between those two alone, which is insane. But you know, we should try, we should try for a million people, you know, United States, imagine that from us with a billion people. <laughs> I'm getting ideas. But yeah, we have 46% of the world's population in the BRICS represented. And then you have 43% of the world's oil production also represented by the BRICS members, uh, again, with the inclusion of those Middle Eastern states, Egypt, Arabia, duh, the UAE, duh, <laughs> and Iran, whose oil production is slowly but steadily recovering. So four out of the six members that have been added to this alliance are massive oil producers. Well, Egypt isn't necessarily a massive oil producer, but they're all made... Three for the four are major, major oil producers. Uh, so it's clear to see where that's coming from. Uh, uh, well, and that's just counting the new additions because obviously Russia is there too and they're just ridiculous oil producers as well. They're up there with Saudi Arabia. So, yeah. 29% of the, the global economy, 46% of the world's population, 43% of the world's oil production and a quarter, 25% of the world's total trade volume. So very big block, very big block. And they say they're not a block, which is why I've sort of refrained from calling them that, but you know, very big organization, you know? So it's clear that they already have enough wherewithal and bulk to operate independently of anything the US or the US Alliance system has to say about it. Sanctions are not going to stop what's happening here. Uh, forcing them to use the dollar isn't an option, you know. Uh, and it's it, crazy that no one really has an answer to this. Uh, the answer to me is simple. You know, you just, we if we should go back to gold. Like it, the answer for me is completely independent of what's going on with the BRICS, but it simultaneously works right alongside with the BRICS because again, the United States really doesn't need to be hostile to everything going on overseas. We talk about, oh, they want to get rid of the dollar and they want to ditch the dollar. They want to have their own trade settlement currency. They want to have their BRICS currency. All the, the yuan is going to replace the dollar. It's like, okay. And why wouldn't they want to replace the dollar? We barely like the dollar here. Five. Who likes $5 a gallon? Shoot. Give me, give me the BRICS currency. So I can get that shit for one dollar again. <laughs> like we already know there's a problem here, but for some reason, when foreign countries respond to that problem, it now it's a problem. It's like, oh, we, they don't want to use the dollar anymore. Well, well, no shit. Who wants to use a rapidly de a rapidly inflating currency, a rapidly devalued currency? Who wants to use that when they have alternatives? I know I don't. I don't like going to the store and seeing that everything is up every couple months or so. Like, come on now. And the solution is completely independent of foreign policy. Stop printing money. Right off the bat, the currency will stop losing value. And as the economy grows and the supply of money stays the same, 
you have in relative terms a shrinking of the supply relative to the demand for the dollar because the economy grows that means the demand for the dollar grows but if the supply stays the same you have a shrinkage in relative terms it's that easy hell you back it with gold and you can set it at a certain amount and then as the economy grows and again you're not printing money as the economy grows and the value of the dollar goes up you can you can set the exchange rate at lower and lower and lower numbers it takes fewer and fewer and fewer dollars to buy that gold because there's relative to the size of the economy fewer and fewer dollars in circulation and you can slowly but surely rebuild the value of the dollar it's really simple like when you take the time to think about this stuff without all the, the jargon it's incredibly simple if you want to stop inflation you don't raise interest rates you stop printing money <laughs> and then that has the effect of creating a in relative terms again a shrinkage of the money supply relative to the growth of the economy you get deflation prices go down the value of the currency goes up now why this is not the economic uh status quo it tells you a lot about the laziness of your intellectuals particularly when it comes to economics or uh, they all subscribe to that keynesian trash that modern monetary ugh, ugh. i remember studying and the crazy thing is i got straight a's in my ap mac class ap macroeconomics class and even then i'm just like yeah i'm not digging this <laughs> it's not that, it's not that i don't understand what they're telling me it's that this shit literally doesn't make sense <laughs> none of this makes any sense you're gonna print money all right, you're going to go into debt, okay, and then you just pay off the debt. Well, what's the incentive to do that if you can just borrow more money? Oops, didn't figure, didn't take that one into account, now did we? That's why Keynes is not an economist, certainly not one that deserves credibility. That's why Marx is not an economist. So we need to stop taking these so-called economists and treating them as though they were economists when they're not. None of these people know economics. Marx was a social commentator and Keynes was a failed investor. Let's uh, let's, let's keep it together now. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it, there's nothing we sanctions are not going to stop what's happening here. And gold is the new future. Gold is the new future. And if we had our currency back to gold, no one would care about, oh, this country, that country is not using our dollar. No one would care about de-dollarization going on with the BRICS if our dollar was worth a damn here. It's because our dollar is devalued and constantly devalued that we're now afraid that if they ditch the dollar that it's going to hyperinflate even more because they're going to send it right back at us because no one's going to want it. Why does no one want the dollar? It's not because they just randomly hate us now, although some of them do. It's because the dollar's worth, it's losing value by the second. Why would you hold on to a depreciating asset? It's like, let's just think about this in terms, in something other than us versus them terms. It's it's uh, sometimes i feel so alone <laughs> speculating and observing the trends in geopolitics and in politics because it's sort of a part of the game and it's like dang am i just wrong <laughs> or is everyone else just crazy now i do not mind accusing everyone else of being crazy i'll be i'll admit i like to think i'm the sane one in this equation but you know there's always the possibility that i'm just wrong you know maybe it's not as simple as i make it out to be with regards to inflation maybe we do need double in, uh, when as a matter of fact we need triple digit uh, we need triple digit uh 
triple digit uh dang we need triple digit what's the word i'm blanking interest rates we need triple digit interest rates we don't need 10 and 20 percent interest we need 100 percent interest and that'll kill inflation oh yeah you want to kill inflation you you get that 100 percent interest rate and see how fast that inflate maybe that's the solution you know we're not just be we're just not being tough enough on inflation. we're not we're just not doubling down enough on the current system which doesn't work we're just not doing it hard enough you know maybe i'm wrong and i always have to leave it out there maybe the bricks isn't going to succeed maybe the bricks aren't going to have a good currency for international payments maybe everyone's still going to be using the dollar and everyone's going to suffer because the dollar plunges in value from the inflation you know maybe i'm wrong or maybe everyone else is crazy you know you know it's a 50 50 you know I'll, I'll take my 50 where everyone else is wrong and i'm right <laughs> but yeah we can coexist with the BRICS, and the BRICS summit is moving forward in a way that isn't hostile towards us no matter what people will say about it oh the BRICS is this all oh, the BRICS is that it's literally just a meeting of countries who have their own interests at heart and are trying to work out a system a, a international system that benefits everyone specifically themselves but everyone now we can either be a part of the solution by not sabotaging it and not sabotaging our dollar quite frankly we could help by not in hyper inflating our currency <laughs> or we can go out of our way to sabotage it and still fail like and the reason i keep bringing up america when i'm talking about the BRICS summit is because the two when it comes to policy are not necessarily interchangeable but they're definitely related they're definitely related uh, again going back to the BRICS currency thing why do they want a BRICS currency why don't they like the dollar it's because the dollar is a depreciating uh, a depreciating asset caused by hyperinflation and because we use the dollar to sanction everybody and freeze everyone's assets the afghan the afghans the taliban they still have their assets frozen we froze Russia's assets. We froze Assad's. We freeze everyone's assets every time they they do something we don't like. Nobody wants to have to deal with that. Not a single soul wants to have to deal with that. We made this. We made this an, an inevitability. Now we're not going to be able to just randomly turn the tide and get everyone to come back to the dollar. No, that that ship is sailed. But that doesn't mean we have to sabotage it. So it's we want to correct for the problems that we've done, but we don't want to over correct quote unquote and start causing new problems because people don't want to use the dollar anymore so i think it's all interconnected but not to the point where it's an inverse relationship where the better bricks does the worse we do it's, it's not to that point like they're gonna do what's in their interest and so long as we actually act within our own interests we'll we're gonna find that the two really don't clash America acting in actual American interest, not these fake manufactured interests of we need to control everything everywhere. We need to have influence everywhere. We need to counter Chinese influence everywhere. Those fake interests, if we cast those by the wayside and actually look at what America needs, you know, trade, trade access, you know, and security, not security in Europe, not security in the Indo-Pacific region, or the Middle East, but security in North and South America, 
if we focus on those things, our interests really don't clash with any one of the BRICS nations. Now, it'll clash with Russia and China trying to set up bases in Cuba. It'll clash with Nicaragua opening the doors for Russian missiles to be based in Nicaragua. It'll clash with Venezuela a little bit, but again, these are things that can be worked out if we are actually focused on American interests. We should have a relationship with Cuba, relationship with Venezuela, and relationship with Nicaragua, to, such that they don't openly enable themselves to be weaponized against us. Like Again, I was talking about this when we talked about that, that, that base that the Chinese and the Russians are trying to set up. The, the, spy, the Chinese spy base, and then we learned about the Russians getting active in Cuba as well. This is a result of not having a, a relationship at all with Cuba. This is the, the result. Our if our neighbors hate us, they know they can't fight us by themselves. They're going to open the door for foreign powers to come in and counter us in some way, shape, or form. And the reason that that, is, that, that happens is because we're overseas. The, the reason that those said foreign powers even come over here in the first place, because at, 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 at least in this go-around, is because we provoke them. The Chinese and the Russians would not be doing naval drills off the Aleutian Islands and off the coast of Hawaii. They would not be setting up spy bases and military training bases in Latin America, especially Cuba. They wouldn't be doing these things if we did not go out of our way to provoke them with uh, freedom of the seas navigation, freedom of navigation and freedom of the seas operations in the South China Sea, promising to defend Taiwan, sending destroyers to the Taiwan Straits, arming Ukraine to the teeth with everything we have, expanding NATO into Finland and Sweden, trying to expand NATO into Ukraine, putting missile bases in Poland that are anti-ballistic missile uh, but uh, but they can easily be replaced with ballistic missiles, which can carry nuclear warheads, which is the problem. You know, we, we wouldn't be dealing with these problems if we didn't go out of our way to create them. If we actually serviced American interests, which are very, very close to home, had good relations with our neighbors, that's in America's interest, and didn't go out of our way to go start wars with foreign powers, that's not in American interest. If we abided by actual, real American interests, we would get along just fine with the BRICS. So I, personally, and maybe you disagree with me, I personally don't see the reason why we need to be so up in arms and afraid of the multipolar world. Why we have to be afraid of Russia and afraid of China. They really don't want to fight us. We just put them in, the, we just put them in these strange situations. They really don't want to be doing this. Which is why it takes it took them so long to get around to it. it. It takes them ages to get around to actually countering the things the United States does in a way that you know Americans actually notice where they come all the way over here to do shit. They really don't want to do that. Like they have to go out of their way to do this shit. And they do it because we go out of our way to be over there. So a simple adjustment. I say a simple, but it's a pretty wide-reaching adjustment of U.S. policy, particularly foreign policy. And suddenly all the dynamics of the day, including the BRICS and the development of the BRICS, work in our favor. Trade with everyone and alliances with no one solves just about all of America's uh, political woes. And it would actually benefit the BRICS if we 
shifted to that position because at that point we'd be almost a sort of de facto BRICS member if we were committed to trade with every every country who joined BRICS. It's like, hey, you want to trade deal with the United States? Oh, okay, cool. You want to trade deal with the United States? Okay, you know, work make it work for you instead of trying to fight every damn thing. Make it work for you. Get a deal with Russia. Get a deal with China. Get a deal with Iran, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, Ethiopia, Argentina. You know? Now, who in America is going to get you that deal? Trump. And then suddenly the BRICS summit, which is, uh, uh, again, like the Bretton Woods of the new multipolar world, they are the BRICS, perhaps not in this summit specifically, but as they have the next summit and the summit after that, they're going to be building, uh, excuse the pun, but they're going to be building, they're going to be laying down the bricks for the foundation of the new multipolar world. Now we can either be in on the take or we can stay out here and look goofy (laughs) when it's all said and done. I want the benefits. All right. Give me the benefits. We can have them and it would benefit everybody like the bricks they have let's see let's go back they have quarter of the world's total trade quarter of the world's total trade 30 percent of the population 46 percent of the world's uh oh 46 percent of the population 30 percent of the global economy 30 43 percent of the world's oil production you know for the for what the resources that we do produce like that like that's massive markets that's forty-six percent of the global population during a time when the population is eight billion. That's a massive market, and you can get in just by having a trade with even a single BRICS member. Because you know they're going to be doing lots of trade in between BRICS members once this thing really, really gets off the ground. You have a a good trade deal with say China and India. It's a wrap. You have trade with everybody now. See how that works, and then China and India with more trade brings more to the table when discussing matters of BRICS. It all, it it becomes a a positive feedback loop. Like the BRICS have all the wherewithal to completely go independently of the United States. But imagine if United States was not overtly hostile to literally everything that we didn't control. Imagine for just a second that the United States was open to doing trade with the BRICS instead of trying to sabotage everything. That would benefit us. That would benefit the BRICS. That would benefit all the new members who want to join the BRICS. That would give the green light to all the people who want to join the BRICS but don't know if that's going to piss off the Americans. It's like, oh, you, look, we're going to work in our interests. You work in your interests. And then and then the BRICS expands. And as it expands, because it's a trading block, essentially. They, again, they don't they don't like being called a block, but uh, uh, this trading partnership, mind you, if we get a few access, uh, a few trade deals to have market access to a few, just a select few countries in that organization, China and India being at the top of the list, Russia also being at the top of the list, I, I really think we would get a lot of a, a deal with Russia. We could work that we could work a Russia deal way better than any other deal. Like, it'd be insane. You get trade with Russia, China, India. Uh, well, quite frankly, that's all the market you're ever going to need. That on uh, that on top of the U.S. market, because we're talking about U.S. producers of goods. That's huge. That is huge. So you get a deal with China, India, Russia. You get a deal with Egypt. 
You get to deal with Iran. You get to deal with Brazil, Argentina. Suddenly, you have access to every continent and every strategic point. Everything is available for American trade in some way, shape, or form, even if it has to go through third parties in, say, China, India, Russia, or Iran, or Egypt, or Brazil, or Argentina. A few strategically placed trade deals would give us access to everything that the BRICS and the Belt and Road, everything it has to offer. We get a trade deal with uh, uh, just a, a handful of countries in the East African community, and we have access to uh, damn near all of Africa. Like, again, us working on our interests, them working on their interests, they don't cross in ways that cause conflict. They cross in ways that generate prosperity. So imagine how much better this whole thing would work out if we had a United States that was actually acting in its own interest instead of acting as though it was uh, an empire, which we're really not supposed to be. This whole thing would go so much smoother. They'd be talking about gold and we'd be like, oh, you know what? Gold, that's a really good idea. What if we put our currency on gold? Oh, wow. Suddenly we don't have any inflation anymore because there's limits to how much you can print your currency when you have a gold-backed currency. You can only print as much currency as you have gold to represent that currency. Suddenly the inflation stops. Suddenly you get deflation. And then you'll start to get countries that say, you know, maybe we don't necessarily need to ditch the dollar. We're going to keep the dollar. We're going we're gonna to have the BRICS uh, trade-backed settlement on, on hand. But we're going to keep our dollars and we'll use the trade settlement as the intermediary when we exchange either our currency or dollars for the goods of another country. And suddenly the whole thing, even the new BRICS currency, can work for us. See how it all just, see how it works? <laughs> see how it works? But no, we, we, we can't have anything good. Why? Because our government hates us. And they hate every, they hate everyone, quite frankly. Because all this would benefit not just Americans, it would benefit the whole world. It would benefit the whole world. We'd have a golden age globally if the United States was not captured by these anti-humanists. And that's all, uh, just another reason why we need Trump. Yeah. Uh, I may as well title the episode uh, The Case for Trump, but uh, I'll, I'll title it The Big Brick Summit. That's what, probably what I'll call it. Or something along those lines. But yeah. Yeah, the, the BRICS summit is still ongoing, so we'll, we'll still cover news that comes out of it. But it's just really interesting comparing and contrasting what we're seeing today with how easily this whole thing could be so much different and, quite frankly, better if the, we had a, a United States led by people who weren't incompetent and didn't hate humanity for existing. I, ho I hope I've laid my vision out on you and you sort of see where I'm coming from, where it's like, oh, wow, this whole thing could go so much, could go even better than it's already going. And instead of having uh, strange people on Twitter going, oh, the bricks will never work. <laughs> instead of having that, we go, oh, wow, the bricks, more trade for the United States. Cool. And then everyone benefits. It's that simple. You know, we just need the right leadership. And I guess that goes to show the importance of leadership. Ah, uh, just a little bit longer and we can finally have the right man for the job back. But that's what we're going to continue coming to BRICS Summit. I think 
it'll come to a close sometimes if it doesn't we'll, we'll, we'll keep covering it but you know it's it's very important it's very important and the way the united states responds to the BRICS summit is equally as important so we'll keep covering this topic but uh, that's that's all yeah yeah no, I, I think i've covered all my notes for the BRICS summit yeah have i uh have i let's go over the notes let's go over the notes let's go over the notes all oh, right, 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 right right the commodities well uh, i'll touch I'll touch on this and then i'll move on the commodities all, all these countries with all these commodities especially the oil producing countries with all these commodities producers especially russia the big boy brazil saudi arabia iran these major commodities producers all being represented in the BRICS, makes it so that their ability to support a gold-backed or potentially even a commodities-backed settlement currency that'll be independent of the West, it'll be independent of the U.S. alliance system, because they can, they have the wherewithal to produce whatever commodity, likely gold, that they choose to back the currency in. And I think that that's a very important detail. Because if you're going to have a gold-backed settlement currency, but you don't produce the gold, well, who he who produces the gold has a toe hold over you. But I don't think they're going to have that problem. So that's just one more reason why the BRICS, I think, is going to be successful, even in their endeavor towards building the new BRICS currency. So that's my, my final point on the BRICS. My final point. The United States also has gold, mind you. We just don't extract it in the amounts that we should now imagine if they used american gold for their BRICS currency see oh my goodness oh i'm you I, you got me thinking guys you got me thinking and now i'm just looking at all these missed opportunities and it's just ah, it's a headache but i'm, I'm gonna move on i'm gonna move on <laughs> i'm gonna move on I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on and we're gonna get into the final topic of today's episode which is space we're going to have a little discussion about space. We, a lighthearted episode, so to speak. Uh, I think this is an important topic to discuss. Uh, space is cool, always cool. But I think that this one in particular gives me a good excuse to talk about it again. So we have the Indian lunar mission successfully landing on the moon. Uh, there was a Russian lunar launch as well. They were trying. Now, that launch, unfortunately, had issues and it couldn't make the journey. Uh, so it, while it would have been cool to see both of these sort of uh, missions go, going on simultaneously to one another and to sort of get a, a compare and contrast to the missions and the goals that each one was up to, uh, and especially uh, the success of each, because the one that India launched went to the, the Chandrayaan-3. That one landed in the South Pole of the moon. Now, I'm not entirely sure where the Russian lunar mission was supposed to go, whether that was supposed to go into orbit around the moon or if it was going to go land somewhere on the moon. Maybe the North Pole, maybe the dark side of the moon, you know. Not entirely sure, but it would have been nice to have that side-by-side -side comparison going on at the same time. Uh, not just for the novelty of having two lunar missions going on at the same time. That's cool. But to see, because everyone's looking for everyone's playing hardball now people are starting to play hardball we're looking for the resources we're looking for the money you know so to see which of these missions was more successful while they're doing this these operations side by side it would have been cool but 
ultimately either way i think it is necessary now the chandrayaan mission because this is the one that we have more info on and this is the one we're going to talk about uh that mission uh i think i brought it up briefly uh, about a month or two ago when we discussed that it launched the chandrayaan 3 that thing costs 75 million dollars just 75 million this whole mission altogether was funded with 75 million so in theory and here's the potential this is what we want in theory if this thing costs 75 million dollars then in the future you could conduct or at the very least the indians could conduct multiple lunar missions simultaneously by themselves which is exactly the kind of traffic and density of activity we would need to actually do something useful on the moon that's what we want we want to have sp spacecraft lift lifting off every every few weeks or so that's what we want now spacex i think launched like their their 5000th um starlink satellite uh actually i'll, I'll look up the number exactly i think it was 5000 uh but yeah this is this is what we want we want lots of activity going from earth to the moon so that we can do useful tangible and meaningful things on the moon that's what we want that's what we want uh starlink mm. satellite yeah and and while i while i attempt to find the number of starling satellites or sort of move on but yeah 75 million dollars like in today's money even with today's money 75 million dollars my goodness that is cheap that's cheap now i wonder i do wonder if they have uh this sort of multiple launch and re-entry ability that spacex has i'm not sure that they do i'm not sure that they do oh four thousand five hundred starling satellites are currently in the sky that's a lot which means that spacex has been very very busy so yeah because now how many of those go up every time they launch a rocket <clears throat> how many four thousand five hundred because i knew i knew i saw the number and i was like what how? that's insane but india 75 million dollars and they do this a lunar mission not just launching something into orbit but a, a whole lunar mission they could have multiple missions going on simultaneously just by themselves now don't get me wrong don't get me wrong scientific expeditions are cool and they will be an integral part of space-based operations Uh, they they always will be that's just how space is we we know so little about space that literally everything is in a sense going to be uh a uh an a spa uh scientific expedition scientific expedition okay so a falcon 9 can launch 22 star starling satellites uh by itself so a single every launch they can bring up at, at least 22 starling satellites so these things must be pretty small so yeah we want this and whilst while scientific expeditions are nice they are ultimately paid for 
by us. Yeah, they're paid for by us. They're they're cool and they're necessary as a part of space travel. They're they're you're never gonna get rid of them. They're sort of they're a feature, not a bug of space travel. But scientific expeditions do not pay for themselves. They are paid for. So if our actions in space have to be subsidized every time we go up, then we run the risk of space being shelved because of costs, like what happened here in America, where they shelved the lunar missions, the Apollo program. And we really didn't get much happening up in space. We had the, the novelty of the, the International Space Station, but I think the International Space Station is gonna come down in a few years, actually. And there's talk of Russia and China coming together to make a new one, and they're probably gonna be working with India, the UAE, and perhaps the European Union. There's gonna be a new space station. Will we be a part in building it? Maybe, I'll shoot. Uh, will, they, will they let SpaceX put a module on the, on the new International Space Station? Who knows? But this time, I imagine that the space station is gonna be less of a, uh, an accomplishment and more of a novelty. Like I, I called the first one a novelty, but this time it's really gonna be a novelty because in this new age, it's gonna be all about the moon. This new age of space and space exploration is gonna be all about the moon. Now, will people want, people want to go to Mars. Don't get me wrong, people do want to go to Mars. People want to be able to, the first to plant their flag on Mars, to land a man on Mars. And while I think we can do it, especially with space, if we have a SpaceX rocket going there, it's a bit of a, a hollow victory to me. Like it, it's massive, massive prestige. You know? It's massive prestige, so it's, it's not like it doesn't matter. But in the grand scheme of things, I'd rather show up to the party late and do more meaningful things than to be the first to do everything, if you understand what I'm saying. Like, the being the first is nice to get there, but if all you're gonna do is plant a flag, look around a little bit and then leave, well, what have you really done? I want a base on Mars. As a, I want a colony on Mars. As a matter of fact, I want to terraform Mars, okay? I have ambitions, folks. I have ambitions. Well, well, well what about the life on Mars? Uh, sorry, too bad, man, look. It's humanity first. Once once we go past Earth, it's humanity first. It, it's not just America first, it's humanity first. All them alien, uh, they gotta go. No, it's, it's us. This is our time. This is our time. This is our, sp this is our safe space, guys. <laughs> but yeah, we want the pay dirt because the scientific expeditions don't pay for themselves. And we don't want space to be put on the back burner because it costs too much money to do. We need space to pay for itself so that it doesn't matter whether, uh, oh, when this, it, this or that administration isn't necessarily interested in space. We want space operations to be able to continue on irrespective of government. Now it's gonna take government to get there, which is how it usually is with big infrastructure projects, but that's the role of government. You, you want you use the government to do the things that private business is unwilling to take the risks for. You do that, and then you use the basic infrastructure, and from there, private business can expand and take the reins. That's how it's supposed, that's, that's the partnership. That's the give, and, the give and take between the public and the private. You don't want the public to do everything, 
and you don't necessarily want the private to do everything either. You want the balance. The government is there for a reason. Use it. That, that's the what I've come around to when it comes to economic policy. And I think it works with space. The government is probably going to be the one to have to set up bases on the moon. And from there, you can let private business, be it SpaceX or whatever, Virgin Galactic, whoever else ends up making their own rockets, you can let them come in and use those government bases because uh, they'll not to pay you a sum of money to use them, of course. You know, Make it profitable. Make it profitable for, for everybody involved. Make it pay for itself. Cover the costs so that you can keep doing it. And then from there, you have basic infrastructure that private business can use to do business. Because there's there be gold in the stars. In, in our case, it's the moon. Now, the Chandrayaan went to the south pole of the moon to look for water, min some mineral resources, but really water and like helium-3. So, but from what I, from what I'm, I think it's really the water that they're after. I think it's really the water that they're after. Maybe, maybe they have uh, some plan of having a, a base in the South Pole where they can collect water. And then because the gravity is so low on the moon, you can cheaply ship it across the moon uh, to say the, the, the equator of the moon. I'll say the equator because that's the part that gets the most sunlight and the parts in space that get a lot of sunlight that that's where the helium three is that uh, from what i've heard from what i've heard on the subject because it's it, it's an isotope that come, that's emitted emitted from the sun so the more sunlight you get out there in space uh the more helium three you can get uh now our atmosphere filters out a lot of the helium three which is why you really only find it in the remains of nuclear weapons but out in space there's less obstacles towards helium-3 uh, and its formation in, say, the soils of the moon. So you'd want to go to the equator if you want helium-3. So the fact that India is going to the South Pole means that they're really looking for water. I think that's what it's at. They're looking for ice, specifically. So maybe they have plans to be able to have their own water supply. And from water, you can create oxygen because you just separate the hydrogen from the oxygen and boom. And you can use that. It's a very basic chemical thing where you use electricity to do that. So if you have solar power and you have ice, well, you can use the solar power to heat up the water, so to, be, uh, to heat up the ice to where it becomes water, and then you can use the electricity to separate the hydrogen from the oxygen, and boom. Now you don't need to bring oxygen with you from Earth. So perhaps, perhaps that's the long game angle we're looking at here. Again, this is speculation, but you know what? It's space. We're going to speculate. But yeah, now that'd be a revolution. Uh, the to for sustained sustained operations on the moon because you can bring you don't have to bring all your oxygen with you or all your water with you. You just have to bring your food. Now there's the kicker. But if you have oxygen and water because you're getting it from the ice on the south pole of the moon, and you build a, a series of sort of little outposts leading up to where you're trying to go on the moon, perhaps leading up to the equator of the moon. And you can get between these outposts fairly quickly because of how low the moon's gravity is. You could have a very basic logistics system to supply missions to, say, the moon's equator or somewhere nearby with water, with ice crystals from the South Pole. 
which then means you only have to continually feed them. You have to you have to keep sending them uh, rockets to with food and little food packages because you know they, the, the powdered food up in space. So you, all, at that point, you only have to make sure they're fed with food because they have water and oxygen. And that would be the first major infrastructure project that we have up in space. And that'd be necessary. And from there, you can have sustained operations on the moon, which means you can actually do things like dig for the helium three, dig for real mineral resources. You can start use you can start assembling the 3D printers that can print out the, the heavy machinery that you're gonna need to do some reels and serious intense mining operations on the moon to find not just ice crystals and helium three, but you want to find the iron. You want to find tin and the aluminum, the, you know, the, the lighter metals, which are probably there, but the iron, especially, uh, well, what do you want the iron? I mean, I guess it would make the spacecraft a little bit stronger, but you know, it's pretty heavy. The titanium. Ah, that's what we want. But would they find titanium on the moon? I'm sure there's probably a deposit or two. Definitely aluminum. But once you once you start to mine metals on the moon, now you don't have to ship them from the earth. So now you just steadily build up the industrial capacity to manufacture. And with 3D printers, if you have advanced, some advanced enough 3D printers, you might not even need the full industrial capacity like we have on earth to build things module by module if you can have a simple enough spaceship design that can be 3d printed in zero gravity then you only need to take the metal and turn it into a resin load the resin up on well i say resin i'm really referring to uh the fuel uh, uh, the ink in the 3D pen, so to speak, for printing 3D objects, even if it's th- printing metal, all you need to do is turn the metal you mine into, you know, 3D printer um, material, you know. Uh, there's a word, I'll just refer to it as resin, even though resin is like plastic. But yeah, you take that metal, you turn it into a, you make it accessible for a 3D printer, and then the 3D printer can print your spaceship on the moon on the moon and then you can use the hydrogen that you separated from the from the the water when you were creating oxygen and you can use the hydrogen the h2 as the fuel for your rockets and it's it's man look we could be on the cusp of something really really big here Uh, and it all starts with being able to have sustained operations on the moon which i think the indians are going for i think india is going for the gold figuratively and literally and this is what we want beyond the potential of helium-3 like not even not even counting that the water ice on alone on the moon would potentially enable us to do these things in the long term and space is an incredibly rich place like once we turn space into a profitable endeavor it's never going to not be profitable so that getting there is the first hurdle because once space is profitable and you have bases on the moon, it just it just works. It becomes the biggest positive feedback loop uh, econ- in terms of economics and human prosperity 
that we will have ever seen. Now, granted, it's going to crash the gold market. Once we hit the asteroid belt, it's going to crash the gold market. <laughs> It's going to crash. Every gold is going to go from being uh, thousands of dollars to worth uh, a few cents. Like, uh, it, we might need to find something else to base our currencies in. What, what would you, man, look? What about a year? We would have to start using heavier metals, wouldn't we? Because heavier metals would be harder to come by even out in space. What if we have. Now, hear me out, folks. What if we have a uranium standard because <laughs> you're not going to find that on on the moon you're not going to find that on mars you, you can barely find it here on earth what if we have a plutonium standard mm. you know because we're going to have to start using those heavy metals to to base our currencies in. and and uh, if, if that doesn't fight the inflation uh, we might be screwed but you know the, the riches the riches of space consume the vastness of space consumes us right along with its riches but once you get space profitable it's never going to stop it and it just becomes a self-feeding cycle all you need is a base on the moon first and then everything else falls in line now and the reason i, I harp on the moon so much the reason i harp on the moon is because uh it's rich in resources. First and foremost, it's a relatively big entity, which means that its gravity will help us get there. Its its gravity will help us if we, you know, start straying away. If we, you jump too high, it's hard to jump too high on the moon. So you know, you don't have to worry about jumping and then falling off uh, off the world. Its gravity simultaneously though isn't too great, such that it doesn't take long. It, it, it's not too great, so you can build a spacecraft of similar size to what you would build here on Earth, but your fuel would get like six times the mileage at a bare minimum. At a bare minimum, you get six times the mileage off your fuel. That means you get six times the fuel economy. So once you fill up your rocket on the moon, it's going to it's gonna do a hell of a lot more for you out in space. Now think about that, because we use up damn near all of our fuel just getting out of Earth's orbit. Imagine that entire rocket that we just dropped down module by module back onto the Earth. Imagine that as the fuel for a, a, a large ship, a colony ship, where you have multiple landers, like perhaps a dozen or a, two dozen landers. And then you have a, a fleet of colony ships all filled up with that giant rocket worth of fuel. Now we're talking. But these are things that you need a base on the moon for. And... Uh, I, the the moon is just there. It's it's just such an obvious pick. Like why go to Mars when you could build a base on the moon and then every and then you can go anywhere. Then you can go anywhere. And that's the reason I harp on the moon so much. It's it's when discussing space, we can't go anywhere and do anything meaningful until you have a base on the moon. We have to have a a, a, a robust base on the moon too. It can't just be some outpost. So. That's, that's why we, we, we got to go. We got to go. And in terms of logistics, building a base on the moon is as easy as it's going to get. It's not going to get any easier from that point on. Like, let's let's really lock in here, lock in, and get to work. I think these developments being made by Starlink from, you know, Elon Musk and SpaceX, by India, by Russia... By China, they built their own space station, and they they did a lunar mission not that long ago. 
I think all these moves in space are going to lead us towards an era of prosperity and scientific discovery and innovation and industrialization, the likes of which we just can't even fathom. I, I, it's exciting. It's exciting. It's really, really exciting. But we need a base on the moon. And I think India's, I think India's onto something, folks. I think India's onto something. But that is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Uh, uh, geopolitical, going beyond the world. We're, we're going geo on the moon, not just geo on the earth. Or I guess that would be lunar politics instead of geopolitics. But, you know, forget the specifics. Forget the specifics. Uh, it's all geopolitics to me. Ah, the world is changing. It's changing at rapid speeds uh, to the point where we're we're not we're not only talking about uh, the Bretton Woods of the multipolar world order that's gonna last that's gonna usher in the new era that's gonna last at least the next fifty years or more, but we're also talking about space, and we're all, we're getting there. We're really getting there now. Unfortunately, America's not necessarily leading the way there, but you know, again. I'd rather show up late to the party and do more meaningful things than to plant a flag and leave. And I think that that's the game we're going to end up playing in the end. But no, no matter how the world changes, be it on Earth or on the moon, we will have fun watching that change together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.